Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Chad, and Evan is having a much-deserved day off because it is his birthday. So we are giving him a little break. You are stuck with just me today, but that's okay. It's going to be a fun one. I will say in researching this episode, I went down some uh, rabbit trails, and I'm going to take you with me. So it's going to be a fun one. Of course, you are listening to the Friday Forge, which is a weekly episode where we dismantle short stories, smelt bookish ideas, and hammer out topics brought forth by the Book Reviews Kill community. And today, we will be talking about stories. Because stories help us understand the world around us. So much of our worldview and how we interact with the world is based upon the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we interact with, both in books, movies, and communication from one person to the other. Everything is a story. In fact, when I meet new people, one of my favorite games to play is Tell Me a Story. When I'm out and about at a bar or standing in line for groceries, I always try to get someone to tell me a story, even if it's something as simple as what they did today. But if I can really get some good uh, juice from them about something that happened in their past, that's a really, really good step on the staircase of relationship is if you can get someone to tell you a story especially about their past something that's important to them as uh, people don't really talk about their past and what makes them who they are with people who they don't trust right so i think it's really fun to try to get stories from new people and it's just a fun game to play if you don't know what to do in a conversation not good at small talk try to get the other person to tell you a story and it uh, will make them feel more connected to you or at least i have found that to be the case and i always find cool ones and it gives you really cool stories that you can tell other people you're like man i was talking to this guy at the grocery store earlier today and he told me a story about getting in to a horse race accident where he was trampled by raging rhinos or something like that um you probably won't get that cool of a story within your first couple but you never know people have awesome stories so i love to pursue them and today i want to kind of talk about the stories that we find in books the structure that they take what are the parts of a story the ingredients of and the different types of stories that we find because you can kind of boil them down to some really small categories there's only about seven different types of stories which we're going to talk about here and as a gift to evan whatever platform that you are listening to book reviews kill today on uh, whether that be spotify or amazon or google podcasts or apple podcasts go ahead and leave us a review and that will be your gift to evan today yes i am leveraging his birthday to get reviews (laughs) Me. Also, I really love words being an integral part of any story uh, are very important to me and I keep a list of my favorites in a Google document. So I'm going to wrap this episode up after talking about stories and the different elements of them by throwing a couple juicy words at you uh, from my list of favorites. So first, let's begin by talking about the five key elements that make up a story. And those are character, setting, conflict, theme, and plot. So with the character, uh, that's a person, right? It could be an animal. It could be a sword. I'm actually writing a story right now. I intended it to be a short story, but it might evolve into something greater. I don't know. Someone a few weeks back asked in our Freddy Forge channel, what is something that we wish to see more of in, in books? And I mentioned 
sentient items and that gave me the idea so thank you whoever asked that question to, of writing a story about this sword that uh, is sentient and it's kind of him reminiscing about all the different people who and animals probably who have wielded him throughout the ages and uh, I don't know why, why I'm calling him him I don't know if there's a gender assigned to this sword uh <laughs> The story begins with him being like, no, not again, as he's dropped into a deep body of water, I'm thinking probably an ocean, as he was wielded by some, like, Viking or something, and uh, is, is lost, dropped into the ocean, and spends, you know, a couple hundred years or thousands, who knows, on the bottom of said ocean, just miserably waiting for someone to come along and find him, or maybe for the ocean to dry up, who knows. But as he's laying down there, he has nothing better to do than regale us all with the story of his past and his various wielders and kind of his arc of being like an evil sentient item and then finding morality and I don't know I've got all sorts of ideas that I'm playing with it I'm only a couple uh probably 15 pages in or so of writing it but it's going to be a fun one and a cool little exercise in story writing for me to get better as a writer because it allows me to kind of exercise uh, a bunch of different stories and kind of weave them all together because he can tell the story about all these different people who used him and it's just like it, it adds to the platform for a lot of variance um and i really like being a little bit schizophrenic and jumping all over the place with my writing so it's a cool exercise for me to get better at writing so we've got the character person animal sword whatever it is but you know we get to know these characters through the author's physical description of them and then through their actions you know we want to show a character we don't want to tell the character we don't want to say this character is brave we want to show that character doing brave things that's a better way of developing that character you can get to know that character and develop them through the words the dialogue that they use through their inner thoughts that we as a reader are only privy to and also through a third party like through how they interact with other characters and how other characters think and say about them um, either to them or to someone else. So character is the first element that makes up a story here. The second one is setting, which is, of course, simply the time and place that a story occurs. We use description of like landscapes and scenery and buildings and seasons and weather uh, to provide that strong sense of setting. And you want to incorporate as many senses as possible. You know, what does this place taste like? What does it smell like? How does it feel? Engage those senses to set that setting theme that is like the meaning behind the events the characters actions in a story the theme is the central idea the message the purpose of the story and it can be expressed as a general statement about people or life uh, it is not the plot summary it's not what the story is about it's the meaning behind it and it can be either directly or indirectly stated by the author though as the show don't tell theme um, continues I prefer kind of an indirect telling of the theme you know let the theme be something that the reader has to seek out and uncover things that we have to work in order to understand and acquire are far more valuable to us and so I find that the theme is fun to tease the reader with a little bit and, and give them the task of kind of seeking it out for themselves. I think it's a, in the Bible where it says it is the glory of God to hide a matter and it is the glory of kings to seek it out, right? And the theme is something that should be sought after. 
Conflict is the next story element, and this is any of the problems that a character encounters in the story. So the conflict is a struggle between two people or things in the story. The main character is on one side of the conflict, and you know the bad guy or the bad thing is on the other side, of course. So they can be external conflicts with other people and with nature around them, the earthquake being an example of a nature conflict, Sauron being a conflict with a person or a whatever Sauron is. Who knows? (laughs) We won't get into Lord of the Rings lore right now. Not today, though. That uh, probably deserves an episode all on its own, I'm sure. Uh, The main character may struggle against another important character, forces of nature, against society, something ethereal overall. Um, You know, right now I'm reading the arc of a scythe um, series with Evan, um, which I'm really enjoying. I really enjoyed the first one. The second one, I don't know. Listen to the episode. We're going to get into it. But, you know, there's a lot of struggling against the society and against the culture against this idea of gleaning people you know in order to control the population because humans have advanced technologically enough that we can eliminate dying so we invented the uh, scythes which job is to go about gleaning people just kind of randomly selecting individuals to kill permanently and you know there's a struggle against that there's a conflict there with some of our protagonists the conflict can also be a struggle against something inside uh, himself or herself or them Themself, you know, their feelings, their emotional and illness, even like cancer could be the this the conflict in the story, the struggle against that. So there's a lot of variance within the conflict that we can find and embed and kind of weave without our story. And certainly a story doesn't have to have one conflict, of course. It can have many different ones. I, I really prefer like an external one. So we have Sauron, right? And then an internal one with like the character not being brave enough in order to go up against this external conflict so there's both an external and an internal conflict so it kind of adds another layer into that story and really helps us connect with them and and have a character that exists a little bit more off the page and has some more depth than just like this person who's good trying to kill that person who's bad you know that's a fine story but it's nice to have some internal conflict there as well Uh, and then finally we have plot right and this is the pattern of events that develop from the interactions between the characters and it usually takes shape in the series of events and character actions that relate to the central conflict of the story. So it is the events around the struggle that is the conflict of the story, right? So the plot obviously is a probably one of the, the primary pillars of a story, as you certainly can have a story without conflict, though it might be kind of a boring one, but you, they certainly do exist. But you can't have one without a plot, right? So let's break the plot down a little bit. So the dramatic structure, we're going to go over the the fancy terms so we can talk the talk and walk the walk and sound all technical here, but the dramatic structure refers to the parts in which the uh, plot of a story or novel can be divided. Uh, And this was kind of coined by a German novelist and dramatist named Gustav Freytag. He lived from 1816 to 1895, and he developed a diagram that is widely used today to analyze dramatic structure. It is called Freytag's Pyramid. It starts with a flat line. Uh, Kind of imagine this this graph for me. It looks like a flat line, and it's got like a peak in the middle, and then it kind of ends at the uh, another flat line. So we have the exposition, which is where the writer introduces the characters and setting and provides the background information needed to understand this story. So it's the start or introduction of a story, the background information that the reader must have in order to understand the rest of it. And this is where the character and the settings are introduced to us. We kind of have the, the building blocks, if you will, the foundation of our pyramid. 
after that we go into the rising action and the trigger for the rising action is what's called an inciting incident. This is a single incident in the story's action without which there would be no story. This is also sometimes called the complication, right? This is the event that leads us into the rising action. The rising action, which is are all of the events that take place leading up to the climax. This is where the reader is introduced to the conflict. The story builds, and secondary conflicts are many times introduced. Various obstacles come into play that keep the protagonist from reaching their goal. So after that, we have the climax, the moment of greatest tension in the story, as well as the turning point in the action. So this is the most exciting part of the story. This is the big battle at the end. This is where you'll hear me say time and time again, I'm sure you're all sick of it, but whatever. I'm never going to stop using this phrase, the shaking of the snow globe. This is the climax of the story. Of course, sometimes a good snow globe shake can occur in the rising action as well, but typically the, the best snow globe shakes occur at the climax. It's the most exciting part of the story, the turning point, and the story kind of goes in a different direction after this, and that direction many times is towards the conclusion of the story uh, because we have the falling action after that, right? We're not at the conclusion yet. This is the immediate reaction to the climax. All the actions that occur after the climax and before the conclusion of the story are fall into this falling action place. All those events that take place as a result and the story is kind of beginning to get resolved in the falling action. So after the falling action, we finally arrive at the resolution of the story. Uh, this is also called the denouement. Yes, I did have to have Google tell me how to say that because it is spelled D-E-N-O-U-E-M-E-N-T. So if you're trying to sound smart, but you've only read that word and you're like, uh, the denouement, that's not right at all. There's about seven extra letters and an A that's just somehow snuck in there in a T, I guess. So it's denouement which is also the resolution of the story. And this is the conclusion of the plot. The loose ends are tied up. There might be a clear resolution, and there might not be a clear resolution, which is called a cliffhanger ending, right? Uh, denouement is a French term, literally meaning unraveling or unknot. The resolution of the story. Any remaining questions are answered, and the final outcome of the conflict is revealed. It's a fun task to go through some of your favorite stories and kind of put in all of the different parts of them and match them up to which part of the dramatic structure of the story. So what is the exposition? What is the inciting incident? What occurs during the rising action? Which part of this book is the climax? What is the falling action? And what is the denouement, the resolution of the story? And kind of put them all together. Um, if you're a writer and you're working on your own story, what parts of your story match up in this dramatic structure? And it can kind of help you kind of add a comprehensive approach to writing it where you know where you're going, what comes before and what comes after, and kind of gives you a little bit of a framework to put in your own juice, your own meat of the story. It's kind of like a sandwich, you know, you, you get to provide all of the fixins, but the, the bread, the, you know, the structure of that sandwich is always the same. It really helps me to think about this dramatic structure and also the elements of the story. Um, the five that we talked about before this, when writing, as it gives my ADHD brain a little bit of direction and structure in order to write because if not I'm just all over the place and I think about this really cool conversation that could happen and then I'm writing that and I don't even know how to put that into this I just get all over the place and my writing quickly becomes a nightmarish vomitous chaos of <laughs> different elements that I think are really cool but they have no structure so hopefully this can give you a little bit of structure to apply to your own writing or at least allow you to look and review books 
and read them with a little bit more clarity, understanding the different components that go to make them up. And so you can kind of increase your comprehension of the stories that we read, because as I stated, I love stories. And I think that even people who say they don't love stories actually love stories because there's so many stories. You know, our worldview is comprised of the stories that we tell ourselves. And so regardless of one's personal thoughts and relationship with a story, they make up a huge part of our human experience. And I think it's very helpful to understand the different elements of them, right? Before we talk about the seven different types of stories that there are, I'm going to tell you a story of my own, which is not really relevant to anything besides the fact that it's a story and I want to tell it because oh, I'm in so much pain. Okay, I've been taking care of one of my friend's cats for the last few weeks, and I have a cat. Uh, his name is Kitty Smalls, aka the Notorious C.A.T. He is a little thug. I, I love cats a lot, and Kitten Smalls has been a little upset that I've been taking care of this other cat as well. He's like a one pet cat, you know, like my cat does not want any other animals around unless they're food for him. <laughs> so uh, this cat, Strider, named after Aragorn, the Lord of the Rings, Strider, of course, does not really live up to his namesake in that he's a little bit, he's got a little sensitive stomach and... <laughs> If he eats anything else, such as my cat's food, and my kitten smalls, kitty smalls can eat whenever he wants. Like his bowl is just full whenever. He's not fat. He's actually in very good shape. Every time I've taken him to him to the vet, the vet tech is always like, "Wow, your cat is so muscular." Like he, I've never seen a cat that's just like so dense before. He's the scourge of the neighborhood for sure. But this other cat, he's an inside cat. Kitten smalls can go inside and outside whenever he wants, which he certainly abuses his right to do so. So this other cat was a little upset with me. Me, I think because he wanted to go outside and I wasn't letting him because he's not allowed and again like Strider should be I feel like allowed to go outside because you know his name is Strider and he's like a ranger right whatever I digress uh he has a sensitive stomach he ate a bunch of kitten smalls food and he throws up all the time and one day I was just like I recorded an episode late into the night and edited and was sleeping through most of the day and I don't think Strider was very happy with me because he needed some love and uh, yeah and good on him you know but he could have come and cuddled with me little bastard um, but he decided not to and instead take his revenge by throwing up all over the house like everywhere everywhere and I was a little upset it's not a great thing to wake up to like every room you go into there's like another pile of cat vomit and you're like oh my gosh you know you're not supposed to eat his food how many times have I squirted you with the squirt bottle uh, when you're doing it so like he knows if I catch him, he will uh, get squirt bottle. He runs off. He's like, oh no. So like he knows he's not supposed to eat that food, but he did anyway. And then threw up everywhere. And then the one that really got me, you know, like I'm pretty understanding of the cats. I'm not going to like punish them or be cruel or anything, but uh, unnecessarily. But this cat threw up on, and this is after I went into like every room and I like discovered another pile. Like there's some on the couch. Oh my gosh, this room, that room, like five piles. I'm the first 45 minutes of the day. We're just cleaning up these piles that like made my way throughout the house. And the last one that really got me, um, which would be the climax of this story. <laughs> all, all that we've been, uh, we, we start with the exposition, of course, and then uh, he ate the food, which I think is the inciting incident there. The, my rising action, um, <laughs> would be uh, him eating the food, right? The climax is my punishing of him and his reaction. So I come in and this little bastard had thrown up on my keyboard of my laptop. Like right there, he doesn't even get up on the counter everywhere. And he, I'm always on it. So he knew that that was important to me and he wanted to spite me. It was like a spite move. And so I went and found him and he knew and I like when he saw me, he was like, oh, I'm out and he blitzed, but I caught him because not today, little kitten and led him over to the thing. I'm not going to rub his nose in it like some sort of animal, uh, but 
but uh, I did show it to him and he was like in full panic mode because he knew he was going to get a spanking for sure. This cat freaked out. And the climax of this story is that he bit me so hard. Like Kitten Smalls is a savage and he has bitten me thousands of times, but never has he bitten me like Strider bit me when he knew he was going to get a spanking. My finger right now is twice, maybe three times the size that it should be normally. I like set up for a full evening, like 14 hours of just like, oh, agony as this, uh, my finger just like throbbed Uh, and cats are, their mouths are so dirty, you know, it's not good. So it's just kind of leaky right now. (laughs) I had to lance it last night. I won't go into details. It was pretty gross, but yeah, man, it was, it was really rough. (laughs) I am not going to lie to you. It hurts a lot. And, uh, it was really hard to like write the notes for this episode because it's my right hand, which I'm left-handed, so that was a blessing. But my re- my right hand is po- it's the pointer finger, and so it's like, man, it's so pivotal for so many keys that you use. Let me tell you, it cannot touch the keyboard; it will go into such agony. And then I'm like leaking all nasty all over. No, anyway, uh, trying not to go into too many gross details here, but it is not a happy camper. My denouement of the story, the resolution will be: my hand really hurts. Thank you for listening to the story, and if it uh, gets any worse. I probably should go to a doctor and get some antibiotics or something because, wow, it hurts a lot. What a great story, Chad. Okay, (laughs) let's move on to the seven different types of story that we can have. So I got this from work done by Kurt Vonnegut, who is an amazing author. If you've never read any of his work, he is incredible. Um, and, And the talk specifically that he did about the shape of a story, which is where the title of this podcast episode comes from. And he graphs out the emotional content in relation to the rest of the book. It's really interesting to see his graph of, you know, when the happiness and the sadness occurs in each story. And that's where he kind of gets the different types of a story, quote unquote, is by this shape of the story as he graphs out the happiness and sadness. And the graph is done by mapping out different words that are associated by emotions, right? So pain, killed, died, death, you know, those are obviously sad words, Um, you know, family, um, bed, lucky, great, good, um, holidays, win, laughing, excellent, fun, winning, better, feast, lost, tree, those are all Saturday, those laughter, those are all happiness words and you know where you have like worry deadly weak sore wound badly those are words that can be associated with with um, negative emotions by measuring the density in which these words occur at different points in the story you can graph out the shape of the story so to speak in regards to the emotional kind of flow of that story and that's how you kind of boiled down stories into these seven different types of emotional flow charts let's call it for lack of a better term i'm sure there's a a, a better word that i'm not just making up um, I, i'm gonna put all the links to some of this stuff in below because there's some really cool tools that have been developed online that are totally free to use that i've discovered these are some of the rabbit holes that i went down uh, and they go deep and there's one specifically called the head hedonometer i don't know if i'm saying that right hedonometer so the um hedon is a uh, a unit of pleasure used to theoretically weigh people's happiness quotations, right? So a hedon, a hedon meter, hedonometer, hedon meter. I don't know if I'm saying that right. These are words that I've only ever uh, read and never said, but it's a noun meaning a unit of pleasure used to theoretically weigh people's happiness. That is a hedon. So a hedonometer is 
this graph and there's a tool that I'm going to link below that's really, really cool called the hedonometer and this measures all these words and graphs out the emotional flowchart of the emotional content within a story or a work right so you can explore a work's emotional dynamics by sliding and resizing the reference and comparison sections within a certain story and see what percentage of a book is happy what is sad what is average and where those moments occur within a story using metadata from Gutenberg project, which just has like an open source, like online, it's called library or depository of thousands of stories. Classic stories are on Gutenberg and they have thousands of books that are mapped out. The link that I'm going to put down to the hedon meter will have, let's start here with the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That'll, that'll take you to that one, but you can go in there. They've got you know, hundreds of, of classics in here. We've got Frankenstein, A Crime and Punishment, A Tale of Two Cities, Anna Karenina, Pride and Prejudice, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which is an amazing book if you haven't read it. Um, Sherlock, you know, all the good classics are in here and you can kind of look over these stories and glean where the emotional content is in relation to other books and like the averages of of different stories and so you can kind of see like why do i like this one find a book that you really like and resonate with if you're really into the count of monte cristo look at that one and see this happiness measurement and use the hedonometer to uh kind of glean some insights from this story so really cool resource i'll link to it below i had a lot of fun playing with it it's a little it's very data-y and it doesn't go out of its way to make its its gooey its graphical user interface uh very pretty or easy to use it's very mathy but uh with you know a, a solid five or ten minutes you can kind of begin to understand it they have some youtube tutorials also about it about how to um, educate yourself on how to use these tools uh, you can also on this tool you can also upload a now i looked through the uploader and it's a pretty again very data-y sort of thing so you kind of but it, it walks you through it. you can you can follow the bouncing ball but you can upload a story that you're working on and it will do the same thing for you it'll graph out It'll make a hedonometer um, emotional graph for your story based upon the words that it finds that you use a bunch of and show you the happiness shift of the story and the shape that your story will take, which I think is really cool. And you can compare that to some of the classics and then, you know, respond and adjust accordingly. So very cool free tool. And this is kind of the where Kurt Vonnegut's ideas of the shape of a story. Uh, this is where that idea that meme being presented to um, authors and probably some of the more nerdy of them where they have taken his ideas and uh, the shape that they have become many years later as uh, different minds have played with that cool idea. So all that to say, as a long way of getting to these seven different types, but I thought it was really cool and like a really fun rabbit trail to go down, not to mention a cool tool to use if you're an author or you just want to geek out and see the uh, emotional shape of a story and some of your favorites. I think it's pretty awesome. I love the video that Kurt Vonnegut does, which I'll also link before below. This is going to be a fun uh, link one there, guys. So there's going to be a bunch of them. But the uh, video, you know, he starts by explaining the story. He's like, here we have what I like to call a man in a hole, which doesn't need to be about a man or a hole, but it's a good way to remember it. And he's like, somebody gets into trouble and gets out of it again. People love that story and they will never get sick of it. Uh, you know, another story can be remembered by boy gets girl. Average day, he finds something wonderful and then he loses it 
and then he gets it back again, right? It's like every romance novel, but it doesn't have to be a boy. Obviously, all the individual variables it doesn't have to be a boy, it doesn't have to be a girl. But that's like the the shape that they all kind of boil down into, really. You know, Cinderella starts with an average, it's pretty low, then rapidly rises with the arrival of the fairy godmother, who, with everything that she provides, you know, some a ball gown, means of transportation, some mascara, uh, trendy, yet what must be the most uncomfortable shoes ever, she rises, right? Uh, side note, glass slippers like are you kidding me like you come across her like standing in a pile of like she's like barefoot in a pile of like broken glass you're like cinderella why aren't you wearing shoes there's broken glass everywhere and she's like yeah about that like the um shoes were glass and i just like stomped my foot and now i'm standing on a pile of broken glass like wow it'd be really hard to feel sorry for someone i don't really have pity for you old cindy you're uh kind of reaping, kind of eating the fruit from the tree that you planted, you know? Like, it's hard to feel sorry for someone who uses razor wire as a seatbelt. Like, I'm all bloody. Well, yeah, <laughs> you idiot. You made your shoes out of glass, and then you kicked something. <laughs> I digress. Okay, in addition to Kurt Vonnegut, um, who kind of moved it into these seven different shapes that a story can take, uh, well, six, really. Kurt kind of boiled it down to six. Originally, there was seven defined by author Christopher Booker and he was like there's only seven basic narrative plots in all of storytelling there's frameworks that are recycled again and again in fiction um, but populated by different settings characters conflicts and these seven types of stories are overcoming the monster rags to riches the quest voyage and return rebirth comedy and tragedy and this list comes from Booker's seminal book, The Seven Basic Plots Why We Tell Stories. It took him 34 years of research and reading to complete this 700-page psychoanalytic tome. But the idea of limited numbers of stories... And the, this work that he did has become rather seminal in that it affects all writers, you know, all of whom strive to create their own unique narrative experience and conflict. Um, but really, they're all going to be boiled down to one of these seven. Uh, there was another list made by Foster Harris in 1959 where he claimed there were only three types of stories, the happy ending, the unhappy ending, and the tragedy. Though how unhappy ending and tragedy varies, I'm not really sure. I think three is a little bit too short for our purposes today. We're going to go with the hedonometer and Kurt Vonnegut's work, which boiled it into six of these different shapes that a story can take. And they used, you know, this powerful computer program to analyze data from 1,737 fictional stories. The purpose was, of course, to track the emotional content of the plot by looking for words just tears, laughed, enemy, poison, and so on to map this. So throughout any story, they describe building happy emotions as rise, to kind of define our terms here, and sadder emotions as fall, um, which on the graph, of course, the rise is the up of is a rising of the line graph, which is based off of a higher density of happy words or words that can be associated with happiness. And then, of course, the fall can be moved and defined by higher densities of um, sadder words. So these six different types of stories that we're going to really focus on are rags to riches, which is rise, right? Starts at the bottom, goes to the top. Tragedy or riches to rags, right? This is a fall. Starts at the top goes to the bottom. Uh, the next one would be a man in a hole, as we already discussed, which is a fall and a rise. Starts kind of high, falls into the hole, goes down, and then finds his way out of the hole, which is the rise again. So fall, rise. So far we have wrecked riches, rise. We got tragedy, fall. We have man in a hole, fall, rise. We have the Icarus story, which is rise, fall. So the opposite of man in a hole. Start low, go high, and then go fall. <laughs> Doesn't end happy. 
Then we have the Cinderella story, which is rise, fall, rise. So we start pretty bad, nothing's going good, have to prepare our sisters who are mean to us for the thing that we want to be doing, which is going to the ball. We So we're starting kind of low, and then with the fairy godmother comes along, we rise, and then the clock of midnight occurs we have to go back down to where we started, the fall, and then the slipper is returned to us. We are reconnected with the prince, and we end with the rise, right? And then the sixth one is called the Oedipus story, which is fall, rise, fall. Starting pretty high, we fall from grace, go real low, then we rise, and then we discover, oh my gosh, it was my mom that I hooked up with, and we fall. <laughs> I guess that's why it's called the Oedipus story. Um, I don't Probably am not familiar enough with the story of Oedipus to uh, properly understand that, but I'm thinking I'm not too far off. <laughs> the entire research paper is available to read online, and I'll, again, post it. I got some link work to do after this, man. Uh, but it is heavy going. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty mathy. Like, they get really equation-y. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a math guy. I remember thinking in Algebra 2 trig, like, I'm never going to make my money because I know how to solve a, a logarithm, you know? So it was a rough read for me, for sure. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. So obviously there's a lot of variance within each of these six different stories, but this is some really good framework that you can compare the story that you're writing or just kind of better understand what you're reading if you're not a writer uh, with some of these frameworks and kind of laugh at them, kind of like top 40 music where, you know, it can all be boiled down into like five different chords you know like you can really uh, draw a lot of comparisons and by boiling it all down to its very base elements you can really boil it all down to just a few different sounds that make up you know all of what we hear on the radio and same with the stories here you know and, and if you're thinking like man how do i create something original well first off like nothing is new under the sun so if you're ever like this is really samey to something else that i read like so what <laughs> like i will never get tired of reading a rags to riches story uh the school trope like there's so many things in stories that like i've read hundreds of times if not thousands and i'm here for it time and time and time again so first off never chastise yourself because your story is too. like look at Akatar, loved by so many. It is Beauty and the Beast. Like it's not even trying to be that original. Like like it's beautiful and wonderful and so great for what it is. But it is not new, <laughs> right? So if you're thinking like, have all stories already been told? Like yes, but also no, right? It can be easy to be like, if every story has already been written, is striving for originality a pointless task? And of course, no, obviously not. And while it may indeed be compelling and likely true that storytelling conventions are built on only six or seven broader foundations, the purpose of categorizing these stories into broad types is as a way to understand fiction and not to limit our creativity or the ideas, values, and concepts we can explore, right? It's to give us a framework to help describe the emotional journey at the core of each story, but they can never define the limitless, majestic scope of the sights, sounds, people, places, readers, things that we can encounter and inject into and during that journey. So while well, a film like Apollo 13 and Mad Max, Fury Road and books, you know, Hobbit and Alice in Wonderland are all in the voyage and return category, they are still worlds apart in their content, uniquely positioned for very different audiences. Stories stand on their own because of the people that write them and the unique brand authors stamp on their stories and the characters that they create in them. Similarly, the kinds of stories that use the rebirth story type to plot the journey of their hero can take an almost limitless variety of approaches to that story. So remember, though there's only seven stories, yes, or three or six or whatever researchers suggest next, it doesn't mean that you don't have a worthwhile story to tell. 
From a framework perspective, it may all have been done before, but only the most cynical could use that as a reason to not write and to not read and to not enjoy the work of someone else and a new story because it's not a new story. It really is. It's just the framework, the platform that it's built upon is very similar as others. And that is not a thing to limit the scope of our creativity merely to help us understand it and help us drive that vehicle down the road and uh, kind of forge the pathway into a clear understanding of where we can take our own creativity. Don't let that limit you from telling your own story because everyone has a unique story to tell. As I said, oh, and this is poetically nice wrapping around to the very beginning of what I said, where I love to get people to tell me their stories. Everyone truly has a story to tell, many stories to tell, and the elements within them are so unique to you. And even even if they're the same elements, they're spoken in a different voice that may resonate with someone different. Someone may find meaning and connection, a way to connect to that story or the way that you tell it that is different than someone else does. And so there's just so much value that can be gleaned from these six different types of stories and their infinite manifestations that they can take, right? There is a tool online called Autocrit. Again, I will link to it below. <laughs> it's really cool. It's basically like a writer platform that you can you can write in. You know, it's like a Word document. There's reports that you can run that'll analyze your writing. So if you don't want to use this head and head on hedonometer, gosh, it's hard to say. And that's a little bit more complicated to not only use and upload your story to and then but also to understand this graph. It's very data y and like if you're not a spreadsheet wizard, like it might not be the tool for you. But this auto crit one is awesome and that you can write your story within this platform and then have like run a, run a happiness report and it'll show you all these different words that you have and it'll be like, you know, here's the emotional flow, here's the shape that your story will take. It is not only a tool that you can, you know, type into and create your story on. It's also like a social platform that you can, they have all sorts of little contests that they're constantly running and stuff and workshops that there's very cool. It's got a bunch of resources for writers that I found. I just found it and I'm really into it. Um, you know, you can set a goal, be like, I want to write 6,000 words every day. And then it'll track that for you and it'll give you reminders and notifications of like, here's how fast you are here. What percentage of our, are you to your daily word count goal? Um, and then you can post it and share it with your friends if you want to and everything. And it'll show you like your weekly data and the words that you used over time. You, you also can don't have to you know write your story within it. You can upload your own story if it's written already in a Google Doc or a Word document or whatever. Um, you can copy and paste that or upload the file directly into it. It has a bunch of different fonts. It's got a pretty rich like text editor, just like you would expect from Word or Google Docs or any of the ones that you've, you are sure, I'm sure you're familiar with out there. There's a bunch of different categories of um, reports that you can run. Like there's like passive indicators, tense consistency, showing versus telling, cliches, redundancies, unnecessary word filler reports. And this will quickly analyze all of your writing and then provide you with all this actionable data that you can quickly use to make your story better. So, you know, you can be like, here's the words within the document that you just uploaded. Uh, and then it'll be like, here's the adverbs that you have. You know, you have nearly seven times, which is a bit excessive. And it says, you know, remove about five. You have carefully six times. That's a bit excessive. You should remove about five. Bodily, you're using that five times. That's excessive. You should remove about four of them. You know, not only kind of showing you the shape of your story, you can use this to find these redundancies, these cliches, or show when you're showing versus telling 
and then uh, act accordingly and adjust. It's a really cool little tool. Uh, and it's free. There is a pro version as well that's like 12 bucks a month or something. If you're a prolific writer, I could definitely see the value in purchasing the pro version or whatever. But the free tool comes with a lot of value and just a really useful thing. Not to mention that there's a bunch of resources uh, to find people of like mind who are doing similar things with similar goals that you can kind of be hold each other accountable. You know, the social aspect of it is really cool because it can writing, especially, I think it's easy to kind of be stuck into the doldrums of like loneliness, <laughs> like the sad writer trope who's just like drinking while crying on his keyboard, right? Because no one's around him. Well, this can kind of help socialize that a little bit. Not to mention other people there to help support you and motivate you to continue to write and to hold yourself accountable to hit the goals that you set for yourself. So I think this is a, this is a really, really rad tool. I'm super stoked that I found it. I plan on using it myself. Uh, even just like simply the summary tool that it has, it's like a report that you can run the summary and it'll be like, ah, eh, your story's like good and bad and here's the good things, here's the bad things. You can do specifically about your dialogue um, you know, how readable is this? How inspirational is it? And the word choices, the it, all sorts of reports. It's really cool. I'm stoked that I discovered this. I'm not going to lie. Um, I sent them an email because I was like, hey, I have a podcast. And I know that a lot of writers listen to the podcast. How about you like hook my listeners up with a good deal? If anyone wants to do the pro version, they have, I sent that like a five hours ago and it was like midnight. So they obviously have not responded yet, but I'll let you all know if and when they do, because uh, I did ask them to throw the bookbenders of Book Reviews Kill a little bit of love and get us like a discount or something. I don't know. <laughs> I just figured. Couldn't hurt to ask, you know, because I really, really like this tool. They also have some workshops uh, about specific things. There's one about writing horror novels and how to write a scary story. There's one about romance, how to write a romantic story. I did some research into like past authors that have taken this and done reviews about their little uh, program. And it has very, very good reviews. So if you're looking to kind of expand your writing capabilities, if they're workshops or anything like the tool that they built for writing... God, I can only be full of wonderful things. I don't know personally, of course, because I haven't taken it and just discovered this tool uh, recently. But man, I'm very impressed with everything that I have seen so far on AutoCut. And all the links will be below, of course. Link, 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 link. I'm making a Zelda game over here because we're linking so much. God, that was awful. I bet you that's what Evan's doing right now. He's probably playing Zelda, hopefully so. Uh, make sure you give him that birthday gift and give us a review. I was like, oh man, you should have told me a couple weeks ago and reminded me so I could tell everyone and they could get you some free books coming. He's like, oh man, I'm just like drowning in books. So he made wanted me to request, if you're going to send him any books, don't just send them to me. <laughs> he didn't say that. Send him books still but also send me books. Uh, if you're also just looking to gift both Evan and I, make sure that you check out our Patreon as well. I've been, uh, Evan, I am, I am honored to have been selected as Evan's uh, alpha reader for his book that he's working on right now. And it is very good. I am very impressed with his work so far. Like it, it's very good. I'm on my second read through right now. He just did a bunch of work on it and changed a bunch of things and it is looking pretty polished. And I know that there was some rumbling, some rumors, some hinty hints that he might be selecting uh, from our Patreons, the beta readers for his book. So another good reason to hop aboard that Patreon is the potential of being selected as a beta reader for Evan, which is just super cool. I, I've really been kind of honored to be involved in his like creative process. And I don't know, it's really cool. You know, my books are like chaos lands of terrible writing. 
of me just like firing shotgun blasts of ideas into the ether and Evans is, is this wonderfully constructed very understandable nice flowing book uh, he's far more experienced than I and so I'm, I'm proud of the guy it's really cool to be involved so uh, I know that he's probably going to be selecting some of the uh, paid from from the patreon list a lot of his beta reader group uh, in addition to some others that he's developed relationships with I'm sure so another good reason to go hop over on that patreon which of course I will link to below <laughs> all right as we wrap up today i promise some of my favorite words and i'm gonna hit you with some right now and now when i say my favorite words i'm not talking about the uh cisqui cis what's the word i'm looking for cisquipedalian i think is the word cisquipedalian use of words which would be using big words to describe something right i'm pretty sure that's what that word means which is not one of my favorite words i'm not trying to throw big words out that are like fancy and huge i don't think the words are cool inherently because they're big and complicated not so we should use the right word at the right time you know like i, I really dislike the word utilize um when you're like oh i need to utilize a hammer like just use the hammer man come on you know words that you should never use in my opinion are like utilize or and i shouldn't say never use never use casually and the way that they're used by like 99% of people and like 99% of the times that they're used utilize leverage paradigm and for my business peeps out there value add oh gag me right now like okay we're discussing the value add right now with our groups so like oh my god stop stop also like you know methodology instead of using method like it's not just dumb it's actually incorrect like methodology is the study of the method it's not the method itself so like uh, i don't know i don't like uh, big words used for the sake of trying to sound smart there's a bunch of studies out there that have shown that you actually come off looking way less smart it by forcing these big words into your common nomenclature it's just like no use the words when they're appropriate to use them use words to convey meaning as easy and as quickly or as elegantly as beautifully as possible whatever your purpose is not for making yourself look smart because that is easy to sniff out and in fact will have the opposite effect so if we want to go data wise here five words ranked higher than any other words that people reported to make you sound actually smart are the words articulate accolade brevity adulation and anomaly and i find it odd that four of the five words start with an a and one of them starts with a b it's like our alphabetized word banks in our head apparently got lazy after the first five skipped to a to b and just like called it a day those are the five words that will make you sound smart but seriously in the study that was done those are the five words that people said make you sound smart Make sure that you are articulate and your use of brevity in your words might get you to receive some adulation or accolades and don't have your use of these words be cisquipedalian uh, or anomalous. <laughs> God, it was hard to put that into a sentence. Okay. I find that in this day and age of like smartphones and digital communication, we have begun this inevitable process of shorthanding our language, right? Which always happens. You know, delicatessen becomes deli, though loses its last three letters with no more than an uh from the common populace. Yeah, that was clever. Thank you very much. Um, and good riddance, I say. Uh, with the sudden connectivity and the ability for memes and ideas, cultural inside jokes shared by millions in a few hours, the evolution of this uh, word evolution is progressing super quickly. And, you know, some may hate emojis. And at first, like with most change, I sneered with the tweet-laden pompous best before asking help connecting to the Wi-Fi. Thanks, Boomer. But, you know, as I began saturating, saturating myself in these new methods of communication, my pride broke as I realized they were not 
a de-evolution, ending in us monkeys truly becoming pictographic illiterates. But as the adage says so succinctly, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And as the culture developed, somehow through the beauty of connectivity, these symbols, these, these emojis have become ideas. Expressions of complicated emotions that it might take paragraphs to explain, but can be delivered with one grinning hand-on-chin-think emoji, or perhaps with a brain being exploded, or a forehead droplet somehow encapsulating the entire concept of, like, nervous, jittering, tenuous emotion, beautifully meaning enough, so most get it, but also staying vague enough that it allows the inclusion of our own experience with said idea or emotion to be injected in there and it makes it more personable allowing us to speak into one's kind of inner minds and self without knowing them fully so like there's some power behind emojis i say uh ridiculously but seriously and to me like that's a beautiful method of, of written communication is leaving room for one's own life experiences specific yet still somehow inclusive and it can be confusing but the alternative is to bow to the fascists telling you there will only ever be one use for this word or function of communication and that's just wrong language is not owned there is no one pilot in charge of the correct meaning and a way a word can be used so if a new method of communication arises which allows us to quickly convey a thought emotion idea uh, that some may reject as improper i think tis you sir who are the one who is falling behind taking time to construct a cage when you should have let this new creature roam free let the emoji run free my friends uh, in addition it seems like every little subculture develops their own nomenclature from pharmacists to book talk you know and our use of acronyms and words specific to that little culture that niche i remember when evan and i first started this podcast and i was like asking the discord like what does tbr mean i had to ask you all fortunately the book benders and the um, book community as a whole is full of just the best, nicest, most understanding people that I have grown to love very dearly over the last few years. Uh, and everyone was very happy to help me out kind of learning the nomenclature, which I think probably deserves an episode, maybe all on its own. Maybe next time I do a solo episode, I'll do like how to talk the talk of the book community, because it certainly has a talk that it talks and a walk that it walks. And those hips have some swagger in them, let me tell you. So as we forge ever onward, I kind of worry a little bit that we may lose some words that added a unique pedal to the flower of communication. And please don't think I'm only referring to those big Sisquipedalian bastards pushed upon us by the gatekeepers of the last generation's definition of proper. Now, some of them are, in fact, last generation's inventions. They're slang. And I don't want to move forward leaving some of these words behind. Much like our military is supposed to work, though its actual execution of it is suspect at best, words should also adopt a leave no word behind policy uh, as to know more is to be able to express yourself more accurately and more uniquely and more you so uh, maybe i should do like a series on tiktok or instagram or something of just like 15 second videos of being like word of the day i'm sure that's been done a million times but i got some good words on my list maybe i should let me know if i should do that that sounds like a good i mean my channel is called wix words after all that seems pretty apropos Right. Each one of these uh, is a is a wounded soldier at risk of being left behind by the army of social media influencers and Silicon Valley tech wizards striving to stay current and only use the words which are hip and are in. And while I will admit that 
all words are not for all people. I feel strongly that we should not reject the learning of any, just in case the situation may arise, where moist, I know, which is a enemy of many, uh, may be just the butthole-clenching, shuddery word, idea, or feeling you wish to convey. So let us not cast aside the moists of the world. <laughs> I remember when I first got a phone at the age of 17. Yes, I was that person whose friends were always being called by my parents trying to find me. And I remember texting and, and seeing the shorthand that everyone was using and making a promise to myself that I would never sacrifice beautiful words and communicating in a way that was unique to me and how I wanted to express myself uh, on the altar of like haste or large th clumsy thumbs, right? So I, uh, and probably to the frustration of many, have always kind of taken the time to at least make my texts a little bit more me. Right, which is probably why I've switched over to those uh, the voicemails where you can just like leave send someone a recording of your voice. It's like a little voicemail, but you're not calling them first. You're just like sending them a recording. So much better. I did talk to text for a while, as Evan will tell you, but everyone hated that because it's not very good and it's riddled with errors. And sometimes I would send these like, "Dude, are you drunk?" texts um, because the talk to text would be awful. So I think just recording the voice is so much better and so much faster for me. Anywho, I believe I have whacked long enough about my stance on words and my philosophy there, so thank you for sticking with me. I really appreciate you all more than you know. Uh, I salute you, you bookbenders, you smiths of words, you page slayers, you tome titans, masters and commanders of the far side of the page. Let us start with extirpate. Ooh, it's a verb. It means to root out and destroy completely. The use of every legal measure to extirpate this horrible evil from the land. Very good one. Uh, the next one, we have obsequious. It is an adjective meaning obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree. They were served by obsequious waiters, similar to psychophant, right? Uh, which is another good one. I should put that on the list. But obsequious, um, followed by prescient, having or showing knowledge of events before they take place, a prescient warning. Right. Kind of a foreknowledge of events and information that may come. Uh, the next one is a Yiddish word that we've kind of adopted, uh, which is kvetch. I don't think that the K is silent. I think it's actually kvetch, but it's K-V-E-T-C-H. Uh, it's a verb. And it means to complain, basically, right? Kvetching could be the Jewish national sport. <laughs> uh, in, in Yiddish, it literally means to press or to squeeze. But in English and kind of in slang in Yiddish, it's come to mean complain. And yes, it can be used in, as kvetching. Stop kvetching about the weather. Okay, so the next one is maudlin. Ugh, so good. It just rolls off the tongue. Maudlin. Which means to be foolishly sentimental or weakly emotional tearful over silly things uh you know perhaps sad that pong your favorite video game has been replaced by vr systems which offer like a total 365 multi-sensory full immersion which is undoubtedly better right but you are maudlin because you miss pong which is just oh the simple better days when it's like really not you know those simple better days when we had shorter life expectancies and burned witches for being left-handed if you're missing those days you might be accused of, of perhaps being maudlin and uh there is more on maudlin it has a sidecar who shouts to be overheard over the engine you know, silly sadness soaked in sentimental sorry <laughs> yeah yeah we went there but it also kind of means sentimental especially through drunkenness so if you use it in relation to someone like drunkenly reminiscing about something that used to be better in the past but like really isn't in like a pitying way that would be an especially like double points use of maudlin 
Uh, this next one here is Picayune. Picayune. This one is uh, petty or of little consequence or worthless. And then it can also mean spiteful or mean. You know, the Picayune squabbling of the party politicians. Um, also had a lot of P's in there. That one is unintentional, but just kind of happened. And this is kind of a dated definition, but it is a uh, small coin of little value. It's like the five cent piece used to be called a Picayune. Also, a uh, fun fact, it is a town in the state of Mississippi, um, which is called Picayune, which is unfortunate, right? Because it means like petty or of little consequence, worthless, spiteful, or mean. The Picayune, yeah, let's name a town after that. That sounds awesome. Well, I think this exposition on words and stories and the formats they take and the base lines and elements that they can be boiled down to has been the opposite of Picayune. At least it has been for me, and I really hope that it has been for you. I hope that you gleaned some good information from it, or at the very least, had a good time hanging out with me today, because uh, I certainly had a good time doing some research and putting my notes together for this episode. So thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, make sure that you go check out that Patreon. Leave us some reviews on your platform of choice. If you're not already, hop into the Discord where we can continue this awesome conversation about words and you can get to know some excellent kindred spirits in the book world and uh, at the very least get some amazing recommendations. You know, Evan and I will recommend till the day that we die, but we certainly cannot provide a fraction of the value that the 2,000 people in the Discord can. So uh, if you're looking for some book friends, go hang out in there because it's booking and it's booking hard. And that about does it for me today. Thank you again, everyone for hanging out with me for evan's sake i will wish you all a happy reading and we'll end with my classic bye everybody